I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. I will recount all of your wonderful deeds. I'll be glad and exult in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. When my enemies turn back, they will stumble and perish before your presence. For you have maintained my just cause. You have sat on the throne giving righteous judgment. You have rebuked the nations. You have made the wicked perish. You have blotted out their name forever and ever. The enemy came to an end in everlasting ruins. Their cities you rooted out. The very memory of them has perished. But the Lord sits enthroned forever. He has established His throne for justice. He judges the world with righteousness. He judges the people with uprightness. The Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed. A stronghold in times of trouble. And those who know your name put their trust in you. For you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. Sing praise to the Lord who sits enthroned in Zion. Tell them, tell among the peoples his deeds. For he who avenges blood is mindful of them. He does not forget the cry of the afflicted. Be gracious to me, O Lord. See my affliction from those who hate me. O you who lift me up from the gates of death, that I may recount all your praises, that in the gates of the daughter of Zion I may rejoice in your salvation. The nations have sunk in the pit that they made, in the net that they hid. Their own foot has been caught. The Lord has made Himself known. His executed judgments and the wicked are snared in the work of their own hands. The wicked shall return to Sheol. All the nations that forget God. For the needy shall not always be forgotten. And the hope of the poor shall not perish forever. Arise, O Lord. Let not man prevail. Let the nations be judged before you. Put them in fear, O Lord. Let the nations know that they are but men. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So this is our third week in our study through the book of Psalms. And we are selecting different kinds of Psalms and hoping and trusting as we examine them that they will help us in our different seasons of life. As you think back over the course of your years, no matter how old or young you are, you have had different seasons of your life. You've had those seasons of deep darkness, great hope, joy, and you've probably even found yourself in those plains wondering, where is God? The more and more that we look at the book of Psalms, this this holy hymn book, the more and more we see why we love them so much. It is really remarkable how they really speak with such great understanding about our souls, our condition, and even they speak with compassion to the world in which we live. They give a voice to what is really happening in our hearts. And they're like a good friend or a counselor that truly empathizes with us. So far we've looked at Psalm 1 and 8. Psalm 1 served as an introduction 
an introductory paragraph, an introductory song for the entire book, identifying that there are two paths in this life. Not three, not four. There are just two paths, the way of the righteous and the way of the wicked. Psalm 8 highlighted this amazing majesty and mercy of God as the psalmist marveled at God's deep concern for them. What is man that you are mindful of him? And today we continue our journey at looking at Psalm 9 where we are going to hear, I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. If you're a a circler, an underliner, a writer, a highlighter, that whole heart is important. Words are important. Psalm 9 is a psalm of gratitude and thanksgiving, but probably not in the way that we initially think about thankfulness or gratitude. Often when it comes to thank yous, we we simply say thank you after somebody has been helpful or kind. It's like, oh, thanks for doing that. And it kind of really ease, in an easy way, kind of just falls off our, our lips, right? You might even have that with your kids. Thanks, Mom. Thanks, Dad. And you go, that's it? That's really it? You're just saying, thanks? I paid, paid for your tuition. I gave you a car. I covered your, your insurance. I, I gave you a home to live in. Thanks, Dad. That's it? That's how we think of thanksgiving and gratitude. But the psalmist is saying thank you not only because he's grateful. In this context, he is saying it because he is also hurting. Don't miss this. David is praising God because he needs hope. He recounts what God has done. He says thank you for a couple different reasons. As a means of giving Both to God, honor that He is due, right? Thank you for who you are and what you have done. You are mindful. What is man that you are mindful of me? Thank you, Lord. But He is also infusing hope into His hurting and broken heart. Or you could think of it as this way, and this is kind of our our theme for uh, this, this sermon. Praise for the past leads to trust while in adversity. Praise for the past leads us to trust while we are in adversity. Let me flesh that out. If we look at verses 1 through 12, we see praise for the past. The reality is that Psalm 9 and 10 were probably one psalm, one collective psalm, and both, both were written in a, an acrostic kind of setting where each new section started with a word whose first letter was the next letter in the Hebrew alphabet. So it got divided up. Typically, this is a form for highlighting a, a linkage to the part of a whole. In other words, each section had to be understood as contributing to a thought to the big picture of that message in the Psalms. So one thing built on another thing, which built onto another thing, which ended up over here at the very end. So they were all linked together. And verses 1 and 2 start off with intentionally focusing on this theme of praise 
for God's actions. And just notice in that section how decisive or emphatic David is and how broad his scope of praise is. Did you see that? I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. I will recount all of your wondrous deeds. I will. And I will give thanks. I will praise you. I will do this. But what will I give thanks for all? All of your wondrous deeds. David is echoing the command found in Deuteronomy 6 verse 5. One of the most basic commands that we find in the Old Testament. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all your soul, and with all your might. With all of me, I will love the Lord. All my heart, my soul, my mind, my strength, everything. He is decisively committed to thanking God and recounting what God has done. David, probably like you and you and me, sensed a divided heart. A sort of schizophrenia of the, the soul where one bounces back and forth, back and forth between fear and trust, fear and trust. Something that just happened with probably even just seconds. And the word recount and thank are two important words here. The word translated as thank is this Hebrew word that basically means to confess. In, in other Psalms, like Psalm 34 or 32 verse 5, the word is used for a confession of sin. In Psalm 9, the word is, is used in respect to God's actions. So David is acknowledging, he's recognizing, he's professing the Lord's actions. That's what, when, what we do when we confess sins, right? I'm acknowledging, I'm professing my actions, what, how I have wronged the Lord. So now here in Psalm 9, what is David doing? He's acknowledging, he's noticing, he's professing the war, Lord's Lord's work, his actions. He is acknowledging God's activity. He is confessing that when he looks back on his life, he sees God's hand deeply at work. Therefore, a better, better it's better translated as praise because David isn't just saying thank you. What is he doing here? He is worshiping. He's acknowledging God's great hand. And great are you, Lord. But the second word, recount, helps us to see this theme go even further. It, it's part of the parallelism of, of verse 1. To recount is this Hebrew word that is used for mathematical activities. So you numbers geeks should get really excited now. It's kind of like when it's used when God told Abraham in Genesis 15 to do what? Number the stars. Number the stars. That's how great your offspring is going to be. Recount the stars. Count them all. So Psalm 9, the idea is like numbering the stars. He is going to, to number off. 
number off. One, two, three, four. Keep on going as far as he can off all of God's wonderful deeds. Therefore, he is going to declare the mighty deeds of God. Like the previous statement, he is, he is going to look back and consider the innumerable ways that God has been gracious. I would suggest that this is a good activity for all of us every day. Not just when life is difficult, not just at Thanksgiving time, but every day to recount, to remember, to retell God's wonderful activity in our lives. And verse 2 simply is saying the same thing, but kind of in a summary kind of way. David declares that he is going to find his happiness and his joy in God. I will be glad and I will exalt in you. Further, he says that he will sing praises to your great name, O Most High. Something happens in you as you remember God's work, right? You remember how he has brought you from life, from death to life. You remember how he has put this person in your life in that critical time when you were in a dark and deep place. You remember that friendship. You remember that training. You remember this financial provision. You remember this change. You remember all these things. And what happens? It moves you from a place of misery to a place of praise. So at this point, we have no idea what's going on in David's life. But one thing is clear. He is intentionally looking beyond himself at the beauty of God's work. It's really easy, isn't it, to kind of focus, to belly gaze, navel gaze, look at me, look at the, it's really hard, this is difficult. And David is saying, no, 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 no. Recount. I want you to thank him and recount the innumerable ways. There's this intentional spiritual focus off of David's circumstances, which are real, which are painful, which are difficult. So the focus is moving off of his circumstances and onto God's gracious acts. In verses 3 to 8, give us a hint of what's going on in his life. And it appears that there are some people who are his enemies and those who are just oppressing him. And if you even look on to Psalm 10, we get a clear sense of this. It says, the wicked man is described as arrogant, boastful, godless, prosperous, and overconfident. But then he gets really personal. His mouth is filled with cursing, deceit, and oppression. Under his tongue are mischief and iniquity. He sets an ambush in the villages, in hiding places. He murders the innocent. Not the kind of neighbor that you want to have, right? No. What does he do? His eyes stealthily watch for the helpless. He lurks in ambush like a lion in the thicket. He lurks that he may seize the poor. The helpless are crushed. They sink down and they fall by his might. Not the kind of guy that you want to hang around with. And so David sees two disturbing things that are unfortunately we often feel familiar with. There are some outrageous acts of a wicked person. But there's also an, a lack of immediate justice 
or judgment. You see it, and you go, how long, O oh Lord? How long before you are going to be taking care of this business? And David, David sees that what, what, what is happening is awful, it, and, it, and worse, they are getting away with it. And these are two very powerful and emotional thoughts. However, David looks forward. He's looking forward. He's anticipating a coming judgment, knowing what he knows about God. That God, the righteous judge, will have his day. He recounts these things to set his thinking on a right path. So verse 3 tells us that God will personally rescue David. And his presence, uh, his presence will be the decisive moment. That there's a moment in time when God is going to rescue. That God will, in verse 4, God will bring ultimate and true justice. True justice. Not like our world kind of has justice, but true justice. Verses 5 and 6, God will destroy entire nations in the, in the past, causing them to be wiped off the face of the earth and to be remembered no more. And David anticipates that this will be done to his enemies. God's done it. He's going to do it. Verse 7, despite all the chaos and all the evil in this earth, earth, God sits on his throne and he has an eternal reign. He always has and always will. And from that throne in verse 8, God will bring judgment based upon true justice, true righteousness, true uprightness. In other words, real justice based upon a real standard with complete fairness. And it will be accomplished. So in the midst of all of David's real pain, from that guy that was being described in chapter 10, David does something in our culture, and for many of you, you might feel that it's absurd. David turns to praise. He, he specifically reflects on what God has done in the past while, while talking as if the judgment of God is already in motion. His confidence in what God has done in the past gives him such hope that he speaks about future deliverance with great faith. It's going to happen. He's done it. He's going to do it. I trust in his promises. His character is always true. I'm going to trust him. His praise leads him to great hope in an ultimate victory. God will and already is making things right. David knows this. And so should we. So David wraps up this section by getting very personal. Verses 9 and 10 are some great, if you're looking for verses to memorize, to put into your heart, these are great mem verses to be memorized. As David rather succinctly communicates his hope in God. He uses a, a metaphor of a fortress or a stronghold to describe where God's people can run to. The Lord is a, a stronghold for the oppressed. A stronghold in times of trouble. 
Further, David indicates that this citadel, this this fortress of, of strength is based on the promise of who God is. You see that in verse 10? And those who know your name. We talked about your name. His very character, the who he is, the I am. When they put their trust in you, for you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. So David's confidence further extends out than just the immediate, the right now. He commands that praise be offered to to God because he is enthroned. He's already sitting enthroned in Zion. He invites those who read and sing this psalm to worship because God will exact his justice. Because why? Because God is mindful of them. And he doesn't forget the cry of the afflicted. Hey, remember that. When you're in that relational spot, that work spot, God does not forget your cry. He does not forget your cry. But look at the entire picture. Notice that there's not, there's not a literal fortress that is a fortress of, of safety. Rather, it is the hope that David finds in God. His hope in God becomes the fortress. David runs to a person. And his trust in his promises makes God a fortress. On top of that, David rests his hope in God's personal care. God's care. Believing that he will provide ultimate deliverance and ultimate judgment. So once again, what do we hear here? In this psalm, in David's time, as he's writing this, we hear a distant rumbling of the gospel. David's enemies in in psalms are not entirely clear, but the New Testament makes it clear, very clear, that man's greatest enemy is not this man described in Psalm chapter 10. Man's greatest enemy, your greatest enemy, is sin. And the greatest oppression and trouble in life comes not from these outside circumstances, believe it or not. It's not from these outside circumstances, but from the indwelling presence of sin. That is our greatest enemy. Sin in us and sin around us are the defining problem for all human beings. And they put people under judgment and curse the curse of God. That's what sin does. Enter Jesus, who comes in order to be that sufficient atonement by dying on the cross, such that those who put their trust in his name as Savior are forgiven of our sins. Remember Romans 10? If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You will be saved. As such, Jesus becomes our ultimate fortress. 
He becomes that stronghold for those who would flee to him for relief for, from the oppression of life's sin and guilt and the trouble of a darkened heart. That's who we run to. We run to Jesus in our times of, of, of the oppression of the sin in and around us. I found this great hymn from Eliza Hewitt. If people would write hymns like the old days, we'd probably be in a much better place in our evangelical world. She wrote this song. My faith has found a resting place, not in device nor creed. I trust the ever-living one. His wounds for me shall plead. I need no other argument. I need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. Enough for me that Jesus saves. This ends my fear and doubt. A sinful soul, I come to him. He'll never cast me out. Do you hear the, the fortress? The citadel of strength? I need no other argument. I need no other plea. It is enough that, Je that, it is enough that Jesus died. And that he died for me. And it is this good news rooted in your past that when you come back to when life is tough, that the Lord is your stronghold for those who are oppressed. And those who know your name put their trust in him. That is the good news. In fact, that is even why we celebrate communion. Part of communion is remembering. We remember the price that was paid for us. We remember that he, that price was paid and gained us access. That's part of what communion is. That's not the whole thing. It's far more deeper than that. But communion reminds us. It helps us to remind us that God is worthy to be trusted in the past because he has accomplished something. And that's good for us right now. Now for verses 13 through 20. All of this gratitude and all this praise, 12 verses in, a, in all, turn to a heartfelt cry for help. David takes 12 verses and he just goes deep, just recounting and remembering, recounting and remembering. If we could do that in the midst of our troubles, Spend half of our time remembering what God has done. And then maybe the next part, based off of what God has done, going into this trust in the midst of adversity. David is in a hard place. And we begin to see it more and more clearly. So if verse nine, uh, chapter 9 is connected to chapter 10, then 10 verse 1 gives us a glimpse into the tension in his soul. Why, O oh Lord? Why, O oh Lord, do you stand afar off? Why do you hide yourself in the times of trouble? Anybody ever feel that? Come on. Yes? Why? I, I'm in the midst of it. I'm up to here. I can barely breathe anymore. Where are you? It's in the midst of my trials. You should be right here, right now. David knows what you feel. 
There are times when it feels like God is far away, where he is distant, and he knows what it is like to be praising God one minute, and in the next, you are just trying to fight to think correctly. So notice how Psalm 9 builds. In verse 13 is the most specific thing that David has asked in this entire psalm. He asked for two things. For God to be gracious to him. And for God to see what his enemies are doing to him. Be gracious to me, O Lord. See my afflictions from those who hate me. This is what every hurting person wants. Deliverance and justice. I desire these things. And David believes he even requests that God's deliverance would result in even more praise. He is projecting how the mercy of God could spread the fame of his name around the world. He is hopeful that the answer to his prayer would fit into God's plan to be honored on this earth. And David's horizon shifts again in verses 15 through 18. And it shifts from his own personal request to the fate of the wicked. He looks beyond his own circumstances and his request for concern from God to the ultimate destiny of those who oppose God. David longs to see the wicked to be caught in their own devices. The nations have sunk into the pit that they have made. In a net that they hid, uh, that they hid their own foot has been caught. The Lord has made himself known. He has executed his judgment. You hear that? This vantage point of the ultimate judgment gives David hope that the wicked will get the consequences that are coming to them. It's coming. Be prepared. There are moments, no doubt, where David feels like he has been forgotten. There are situations where he feels that he has no hope, but he speaks with perspective that this will not be his lot forever. He is speaking in faith. And David concludes his psalm with a crescendo and a flourish. It's almost as if he has convinced his own soul that God is worthy such that he voices what sounds like a command to God. Did you see that in verses 19 and 20? David's kind of given a, out of faith, knowing God's character, his situation after recounting and thanking God for his past. What does he do in verse 19? It's kind of a command. It feels kind of, whew. You dare speak that way to your, your father? Arise, O God. Arise. It's kind of like, get up. Get moving. Arise, O God. Let not man prevail. Let the nations be judged by you. Put them in fear, O God. It's kind of like, you're speaking to a holy God who spoke and the whole world pops into existence and you're telling him what to do? But David has such an amount of faith in God's character in who God is, 
And he has recounted how God has acted in the past. So David is living in the moment as if the future is already upon him. The moment when God will be seen for who he really is. And most importantly, man, mankind will be shown who God really is. And the psalm ends with David nearly saying, God, go get him. Go get him. He wants God to be seen in might. Arise, O God. Arise. Put them in fear. Let them see who you really are. And then he wants for mankind, specifically the wicked, to know their place. Let no man prevail. Let the nations know that they are but men. In other words, David is confidently calling God to set the record straight and to show this arrogant world who is really in charge. David has seen God's power in the past. He longs to see it again. His present present confidence, his immediate trust is rooted in what he knows and has seen God do. And so David ends not so much commanding God, but preaching to his own heart that God will be victorious one day. He's preaching the gospel to himself. He is saying, Arise, O Lord. But what he is really saying is trust, David. Trust. Trust in God's character. Trust in God's promises. Trust in His righteousness. Trust in Him. And so this is a very helpful psalm in so many different ways, but I'm going to give you a few different kind of takeaways as we think about this. Here's the first one. Gratitude brings grace. Saying thank you to God is more than just an appropriate reaction to God's blessings. It's more than that. Gratitude for God's God's past actions brings an amazing amount of grace to our lives as as we remember what God has done in the past. Recounting the wonderful deeds of God is like giving oxygen to our drowning souls, right? You think about everything in the midst of your pain. You think about everything that God has done in the past, His faithfulness, His hand, His care, His provision, His salvation given to you. And what does it do? It gives oxygen to your drowning soul. Gratitude reminds us about what we are too quick to forget. That God is worthy of our trust. And if you need proof, look back. The hymn writer, Johnson Oatman, rightly expressed it this way. When upon life's billows you are tempest-tossed, when you are discouraged, thinking all is lost, count your many blessings. Name them one by one. And it will surprise you what the Lord has done. Count your blessings. Gratitude will give you grace.
Secondly, you need, friends, you need a regular dose of the vertical. And I'm not talking about just Sunday morning. Why are we doing this summer challenge of reading through the Psalms? Because you need a regular dose of the vertical. We are constantly bombarded in this life with various issues. Temptations, trials from the world that we live in. And if that is the only world that you live in, you will lose perspective on everything. I am bombarded. I'm constantly thrown off my base. I don't know what to do. You need to go vertical regularly. Prayer private worship, corporate worship, and the world, and the word lifts us up to another realm, a realm that we so desperately need. Lastly, and this might be the most difficult, choose to make pain a platform for praise. One of the keys to walking through any difficult season is to make the conscious, determined decision that you will not allow your painful circumstances, destructive people, or personal hardship to define you or to take over your life. It's so easy, isn't it? The difficulties of this life begin to define who I am. I'm always a person who's this. I'm always, it's, everything's out to get me. Everything is falling apart. And it begins to define who you are. Pain is scary because it has this ability, this seeming ability to control everything. But you make the same faith-filled choice that the psalmist makes here. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. I will recount all of your wondrous deeds. In the midst of my pain, in the midst of all this difficulty around me, I am going to make a conscious decision that my pain is going to become a platform for praise. Praise and gratitude become the means by which you turn your focus around. Psalm 42 features a section that seems as if David is preaching to himself, almost dragging himself to this, to make pain a platform for praise. Listen, why are you downcast, O oh my soul? And why are, you, why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God. Do you hear it? Get up here. Put your hope in God, for I will again praise Him. My salvation and my God. My soul is downcast within me. Therefore, I remember you. When it's hitting the fan, what do you do? I'm going to praise God. I'm going to choose right now to remember and recount and thank Him for all that He has done. You see how powerful God-centered praise can be? By looking back, David sees both the present and the future differently. And by looking up, 
he gains a perspective on the pain of this life. Thanksgiving has become a balm for his hurting and fearful soul. And at the same time, God invites us to do it today. He invites us to look back at his wonderful deeds of the past, not, to, not the least, least of which is the sacrifice of his son. And he invites us to consider all the historical blessings of God so that our attention and our hope can be turned upward towards him. So friends, praise for the past leads to trust in God in those times of adversity. Apply it. Believe it. Practice it. Let's pray. Father God, as we consider Psalm 9, may we remember how great is your faithfulness. Morning by morning, new mercies we see. All that we need, your hand has provided. Great is your faithfulness. O oh God, to me. Help us, O oh God, to recount, to retell, to be thankful. And when the adversity comes, when the trials of life are hitting all sides of our boat in life, may we find our hope in you. We pray this in Jesus' name.